and this is another episode of Serially Obsessed. Guys, thanks so much for joining us, for having a listen. This is a bonus episode. I'm Daisy Rosario. I'm Dipti Sarawit. I'm Layla Carrillo. And we are here to give you a bonus about Serial because we just can't deal with the fact that it's gonna wrap up. You know, stories have to end, but does our obsession have to end? I don't think it does. Exactly. No, no. Um, So why are we obsessed? Well, it's a great show, but I listen to it from a public radio producer standpoint. That's what I do for a living. It's something I love. It's something I studied. I like to get into, like, Sarah's word choices, her her choices of what she plays for us, and and I think about the editing when I'm hearing things as well. What did we maybe not hear? And that's one thing I bring to talking about the show. And I am Dipti, and I am an attorney and a former criminal prosecutor, so I love to look at the legal aspect of it. Uh, I'm Layla, and I look at it from a media critic perspective. I am sort of looking at big picture and what uh, what the show means to how uh, stories are going to be told, I guess, in the future, specifically like true crime is sort of like the podcast universe has kind of exploded for a lot of people with just the show. Um, yeah, a lot yeah. of people found podcasting through Serial. Through Serial, yeah. It's exciting. And this is a bonus episode, and not just because we want to like oh, talk about it randomly, we have a special guest today, and this is our first special episode with a guest. special guest. Special guest! Uh, <laughs> and so we'd like to welcome Dr. Jennifer Tallon, PhD. She's a psycholegal scholar and a friend of the show, as in she's friends with one of us. Um, <laughs> so we're really stoked to have her here. Jen, welcome. Hi, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah thank awesome. you so much. I'm so excited to have you on. I know, I can't yeah. wait to get into it with um, you and finally kind of say, this is what we do in our lab. What do you guys actually yeah. do in the court? So <laughs> let's get into what you do. Uh, my background is in psychology and law. I am a cognitive social psychologist and I have a PhD in, I guess, forensic psychology from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. My background's primarily in jury decision making, so a lot of the things that are talked about on Serial are things that I've researched in some capacity or another. So jury selection, jury decision making, um, expert testimony, all of these things that Sarah talks about in the show are things that get me really stoked and I can't wait to kind of discuss everything with you guys to get your perspective on you know, these things and how as psychologists we study the application of psychology to the legal system to answer some questions that I'm sure you guys have and the listeners do as well. Yeah, cool. Uh, so for the audience, let's just, you've been listening to the show, right? Yes. Yeah. Our show and Serial. Yes. <laughs> as a friend of the show, you kind of have to. <laughs> so you are up to date. It's not like you're, we're like going to ask you random questions about the show that you're unfamiliar. You've been listening to Serial yes. as well. Maybe not as obsessed as we are, <laughs> um, but yeah, familiar with the show. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. So, yeah, I mean... I want to ask you up top, how yeah. long did it take you to get to go through all that schooling? How many years is that? Uh, ten years from undergraduate oh. to dissertation being filed. From freshman year of college? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So I did the four years of undergrad, right. then I did two years of master's, and then four years in the PhD program. Wow. What wow. Was, can you say what your dissertation title was? I, uh, if I can deal with the PTSD like flashbacks of having <laughs> done that. Um, I don't remember the exact title, but I did a lot of research on defendant remorse statements in wow. penalty trials. So a lot of the stuff that's popping up here about, oh, was he remorseful or he didn't address the jury is all stuff that I had researched. So it's kind of exciting to see things that you've yeah. been working on for so long now talked about in a real case. So yeah. And like in a popular culture way, because I'm sure right. a lot of people don't even consider this sort of stuff until yeah. until something like this. I mean, maybe there's a little 
Well, no, I was going to say, like, maybe there's a little bit of that sort of chit-chat if you're super into, say, like, law and order. Well, you know when people think about it? Like that. When they've been on jury duty. Some people do want to get out of jury duty. I don't understand that. But, Mm -hmm. well, I guess if you're working freelance, then, okay, fine. Very understandable. But I I find it fascinating. I come from the other side Mm -hmm. where I would pick juries um, and it is... A psychological experiment Absolutely. really you don't know one way or the other it's not it is and isn't a science there's risks and so I'm really interested in your talking about what you do to help like if they hire you mm-hmm. if they hire a jury selection expert in what capacity do you perform your duties uh, it varies. So it really depends on what the issue is at hand in the case. So some stuff that I've done in the past has looked at change of venue motion. So you would be really looking at the nature of the publicity surrounding cases to argue that there's that the jury pool is tainted. There's no way you could find somebody that hasn't heard about this case and has, has not been exposed to things that they probably should not hear about in the mm-hmm. courtroom. So it could take the form of looking at publicity. It could be doing surveys of the community. A really good example where jury selection um, tactics were used and, and just trial preparations, the O.J. OJ Simpson case. That mm-hmm. was a kind of a class example of you had consultants in there co- telling you how, what to wear that day, you know, how to formulate your arguments to the wow. jury. So it, it really depends, but it, in some ways it's not too different from market research in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. that oh, you, sure. You're running focus groups to kind of get a sense of, well, if I present the evidence this way, what, how are you leaning? So some of the stuff that they talked about with Goots, Gutierrez. That's a callback. Uh, <laughs> some of the stuff they had talked about where she would go to school um, classrooms and try to explain this complex evidence. That's what, uh, a, a, that's yeah. what a, tri- a jury consultant would try to help you do. How do you want to present the best case possible so that people could understand it and you know, potentially find in your favor. So how about, do you help with the selection process with voir dire? They can. I, I, I've done some of this work. I'm, I'm okay. a college professor, so oh, I wow. tend to do more research, okay. teaching. But absolutely, uh, trial consultants would help with jury selection primarily. So it could be what kinds of questions you should ask, um, surveys of the community just kind of get a sense of what knowledge base is out there in terms of what they know about the case already could be as i was saying running their own mock trials and Mm -hmm. getting a sense of okay well if we try to present it this way what are you going to do my question is i imagine that i've never had i've never Mm -hmm. tried a case where we had to hire a a jury Mm -hmm. consultant Mm -hmm. a psychologist to help with that and so i imagine the cases where that's happening are big time Mm -hmm. and the only attorneys trying those cases are big time so what can what con, they know what they're doing you know mm-hmm. what i mean like they're successful they've won a lot of trials they they've gotten this art of picking the jurors down mm-hmm. so in what instances would you say that they're actually saying uh we need some outside help i, I guess it really depends on the case and there's there are some ethical issues surrounding trial consulting because as i said you're essentially trying to pick a jury that's going to favor your side right so, as you were yeah. saying it, these are big time lawyers so one of the criticisms of the industry is that it tends to favor wealthy clients yeah oh, sure. uh, so it's people who go into trial consulting typically have a background that i do that they're they have phds they're trained as social or um, quantitative psychologists so 
they have the same training that I do, it's just that they're applying it in a more hands-on manner to each case that comes along. So they're very thorough, they know what they're doing, but the ethical dilemma is kind of, well, is it fair to, that some clients can afford this and others might not? And that's not everybody. There are certainly some trial consultants that will offer their expertise up at either you know pro bono or right. they would do it at a reduced rate. It really depends on a case-by-case -case basis, but I think the prototypical instance that we all think of is, okay, it's a wealthy client who now is trying to beat the rap somehow. Yeah. So it, you know, I don't think you see trial consulting in every case, but that's also the bigger issue that most cases don't go to trial. Most right. cases are all resolved through plea bargaining because that's how our system works. Mm -hmm. We want to move cases through the system as quickly as possible. So it would I, just be a log jam otherwise. It Absolutely. Is, yeah. It is even with all the pleas that, yeah. I mean, and it's insane. Yeah. You, yeah. You're, you get arrested in Brooklyn, say, you don't go back to court again for maybe at least two months. And and some people get so worried about these really little offenses. Mm. Like, they, they, like they were smoking a joint. And it's really just like a ticket. And um, But they have this in their head. Oh, my God. And I know for a fact that it's nothing's really going to come of it. They have nothing to worry about. But not everybody knows that. And so there's this fear in their mind. And... But they can't do it for sooner because right. they just don't have the schedule. Have yeah, schedule and and that's why. You, I mean, it takes me a long time to get like a gastroenterologist appointment. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> everything is it's just especially when government is involved. But that's why also a lot of people plea at arraignments. Yeah. Did, did, did you ever do night court? Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, I've gone and watched night court for fun. Oh, you have? Yeah. That was a, I was I was a date once. Ooh. Are you joking? Ooh. I'm not joking. How was that date? How'd it go? It was it was good. It was fun. It was interesting. Wow. Yeah, I did night court. It went till like one in the morning, maybe one thirty. Yeah. And you just try to plea everything out. Yeah. But I mean, obviously you can't plea the wrong things out. The one thing is it's it's a political office. So in the end, if if you make the wrong decision with the wrong case, even though it's such a ridiculous crime, but it happens to have a crazy victim who's going to call the New York Post and blast the DA's office, right. you're gone. Yeah, You right. know, I mean, and that's not a hard and fast rule, but that's the fear that a oh, lot sure. of ADAs live in every day. From yeah. day one of the job, even though you might be handling these smaller misdemeanors, you're still scared because so you're your scared case of the Scared of the post. <laughs> and then the person that you're trying to convict is like sitting around terrified of a joint. Right, right. <laughs> right. Everyone's just Everyone's scared. Everyone's scared. It's, we breathe fear. Because <laughs> um, it's nighttime. But yeah, most trials don't, most cases don't go to trial. Mm -hmm. And most, and not all ca cases that go to trial have a jury. There's so many Absolutely. bench juries. And most cases are misdemeanors. They're not big felonies. So when you're getting to the homicide level, there's not that many mm -hmm. so when the jury expert is called in it's a big deal yeah so i find it so interesting what you tell them right and i think in other capacities where psychologists play a part of the legal system is not necessarily in the jury selection process but mm -hmm. expert testimony is yeah another sure. oh, i've got an expert psychology witnesses mm -hmm. and they evaluate mm -hmm. uh the defendant say for um for whether they're insane, insane or uh, display sociopathic behavior. Mm -hmm. And I remember it taking a very long time and you have to be very careful about it all. Absolutely. And, it, and um, 
Uh, if you could talk about that, I would love to hear. Yeah, traditionally that. people who do that kind of work have backgrounds in clinical psychology, mm -hmm. so they're licensed clinicians. So as we heard in the most recent episode of Serial from Dr. Ewing talking about his work and research in that area, primarily I think the biggest thing is competency to stand trial issues. Right. Because we have so many people coming into contact with the criminal yeah. justice system who have mental health issues that you know, it's not fair to send them through the system without affording them due process. So Correct. very often uh, psychologists might be called in to assess someone's competency and figure out how can competency be restored also. Juvenile justice issues are huge. Um, yeah. With people being, uh, juveniles being waived into adult court, that could be another issue where competency gets called into question. So psychologists who operate in that capacity are really, as you were saying, just seeing the clients and then delivering their report to the yeah, court. Yeah, it's an intense report. Very intense and very thorough. So again, they're, they're getting so many of these evaluations in a day, they kind of have to know what the latest research is, be yeah. up to gear on the latest instruments used to assess competency, of which there are many. And some are quick screening instruments, some are longer structured interviews that can take hours to administer. So. It's, it really, again, depends on a case-by-case -case basis, but I think you know, we're, we're all raised in this law and order sort of mm -hmm. way of thinking about things that when we hear psychologists and legal system, we automatically think, ooh, it's profiling, or yeah. oh, it's right. an insanity case. <laughs> and you know, insanity is, is very rare, that, those cases, because um, we can get into that a little bit, because yeah, I know Ewing talks about it. Yeah. Um, it's an affirmative defense, but you're essentially saying, I, I did the crime, but there's a reason that mitigates my responsibility. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of strong attitudes about the, the mental health system, about mentally ill individuals, and back to jury selection, all these things kind of play out in a way about, like we were saying, what, what is your prior knowledge? What's the stereotypical insane defendant look like? And so to kind of bring it all back home again, a jury consultant in cases like that might try to assess the strength of these attitudes and stereotypes. A clinician would be more hands-on in actually examining the defendant and delivering the report to the court, um, either about how to restore competency, or we, we never answer the ultimate question, because that's what's left to the jury to decide whether right. somebody is guilty or not guilty. We right. simply would offer up an opinion, and we mm -hmm. never speak in terms of black and white, it's always probabilities. So it's, it's yeah. likely this happened, it's not likely. So is part of it just mitigating like that like getting people into the gray because I feel like one of the things we've talked about before on the show is you know you brought up law and order but uh, and I think we talked about it on one of the episodes Dipti, the the CSI effect and like mm -hmm. people coming in like ex having these expectations right. and going like no like we need to lay this foundation right. of you know like these things are not absolute sciences but this is the best thing that we can tell you and this is why we're making these judgments absolutely that's the one of the things that the judge would have to look at to determine whether or not expert testimony would be relevant in this case. Is it going to be educational? If the expert is deemed as too prejudicial, then it doesn't really bring anything to the table. It creates more bias. But it, the whole goal of the expert is to educate the layman about something they don't know about. Right. So be it cell phone signals and towers, or mm -hmm. be it just mental health issues. Uh, that's can, what the expert brings to the table. Can you give us some stats, if you know them? Oh, are 8% are so of human beings sociopaths? You know, things uh, like so we that. want to get into the psychopath-sociopath yeah. discussion. <laughs> Serial talks so much about psycho psychopathology mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah. people being sociopaths. And, like, I'm just curious what your thoughts are, if you have any statistics. Is it is it such a tiny 
portion of the population or is it much larger but they just don't get into trouble they're not like the vision of it that we have right but we we talked a lot in episode 111 which covered serial episode 11 uh about what a sociopath looks like because dr ewing who i love i loved him too (laughs) we all loved him yeah he was great um he he was saying that people don't look like what the people don't look like monsters can you tell us about how people don't look like monsters? We'll <laughs> get on that a little well, bit. Well, again, I am, I am not a clinician, but as a professor, I can talk a little bit about the topic. But I would, I would say what Ewing says at the end is perfect, that not all psychopaths are killers, not all killers are psychopaths. And, I, so, and this is just a good example. People are using the term psychopath and sociopath interchangeably, and that's right. just what we do in everyday discussion. Yeah, right. But I think there are a couple important things to be aware of that... Uh, psychopathy isn't a formal psychological diagnosis. It mm-hmm. doesn't exist in the DSM, which is kind of the Bible mm-hmm. of the big Bible. Bible yeah, of- the big uh, the big Bible of various psychological diagnoses and disorders. The closest that you have in there is a personality disorder called antisocial personality disorder, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which has very strict requirements, as do all personality disorders, because it's a lifelong, pervasive style of um, presenting yourself. So with psychopathy, the I would say in the field, the hair psychopathy checklist revised is probably the, the tool that's used most often to, I don't want to say diagnose, but to measure psychopathy. Mm-hmm. And it's a two-factor instrument. One factor measures uh, interpersonal functioning. So as they were saying, kind of shallow, glib, lack of empathy, uh, very charming, manipulative. And the other factor measures actual criminal behavior. So it's specifically criminal behavior. Or I should well, I, or shitty behavior. Maybe shitty behavior is a better way <laughs> of thinking of it. Uh, but it's it's actually kind of measuring more behavioral aspects, where the other one is measuring more interpersonal functioning. Mm-hmm. So it's conceivable that you could score very high on the interpersonal functioning, uh-huh. but you've never gotten arrested for anything. So what does that mean? It means you're a CEO. I mean, if you think about it. Oh! get measured that's an important thing to consider so I, I don't know if there's any hard and fast statistics off the top of my head that would say you know eight percent of people get medicines I remember back being an undergrad and there's always the example in every intro psych textbook mm-hmm. of like ooh, anyone could be a psychopath because they can be charming and manipulative but Again, we have to kind of look at what is the actual operational definition of these variables. Sorry, I got a little too no, science-y just. It. <laughs> I love it. Um, how are we defining these variables? How are we studying them? Because how you define them is really going to kind of influence the statistics that you get. Yeah. So yeah. with something like antisocial personality disorder, which is very strict, it's things like you have to have a diagnosis of conduct disorder before a certain age, and it's okay. really focusing more on the behavioral oh. aspects not as much of the interpersonal stuff as the hair PCLR measures. What's a hair PCLR? Oh, Robert Hare. He is the researcher who kind of put forth the psychopathy checklist revised, which is Mm -hmm. one of the big instruments that's used to study this. Okay. Um, You know, it it, it really really depends. And even back with the terminology of using sociopath versus psychopath, there's even a distinction in the field that depending on what school of thought you ascribe to, you might use sociopath to really identify people who maybe are, you know, 
kind of lacking in empathy and manipulative and engaging in criminal behavior, but maybe it's because that's how they grew up. Maybe it's more of a situational factor mm. where a psychopathy might be used if you ascribe more to biology as being the root cause oh, of why um, someone's engaging in that behavior. So this raises the question for me of expert testimony. Uh, the law is gray, it's not black and white, so it's fair to say, I guess, that psychology is gray and not black and white. <laughs> so have you ever seen an expert witness actually be deemed not an expert? Or, I mean, it can, it can happen. It can happen, sure. It could really, that, that determination is primarily going to be, it, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction mm -hmm. about what the standard is for somebody to be admitted as an expert. So if I recall correctly, I think in New York State, they use what's called the Fry Standard. That yeah the research has to be generally accepted. Yeah. If you're in federal court, you have the Daubert standard, which is stating mm -hmm. it has to be falsifiable, peer-reviewed, generally accepted, and um, I'm blanking on the last factor, but it's okay. um, it's just, you can see like the definitions get more science-y depending yeah. on where you're, where you're at. And again, it goes back to the idea of, is the expert going to prove helpful? But right. I think it's important to note, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. that uh, the expert has to be deemed an expert, mm -hmm. and uh, everyone agrees. They all the credentials are, be, are put forth. This is all part of the direct examination, um, but the jury doesn't have to take that expert's word. So I think that some people may forget that just because this person was deemed an expert, they can still weigh it however they want. They could still respond right. to the personality the sure. same way they of the same of the expert, else. right? Absolutely, they yeah. can. They can think. They can take it or leave it. It's mm -hmm. not just the expert said that this person oh, has this psychosis and that's what it is. They're just, it's just more evidence and, to weigh right. and all the evidence you weigh. But the danger with that is they're told that in the jury instructions, they are. which they do not understand. So go into that. Okay, um, so as I was saying, yeah, my what back... What are jury instructions? What are jury instructions? Oh. Well, well, oh, well, again, it, it depends. Um, traditionally, I, I guess it comes at the end of the trial, it but it can at, come at the beginning. Well, it, it's it, it's essentially mostly when, the, when both sides have presented their cases, everyone has rested, and the judge instructs the jury on exactly what they're to deliberate and what the specific charges are, and it is a boring to sit through and I can't imagine the jury because it's very specific if certain testimony was deemed uh, you know objectionable and you know they sustained it you can't consider that and you have to remember certain things right and you have to know the very specific charges and the elements of each charge mm -hmm. so there's certain things that need to be proven mm -hmm. uh, in order for a, a crime to be you know to have been committed so you have to explain each element of each charge. So when you hear that somebody has been indicted on 22 counts <laughs> and that goes to trial one day, oh, first of all, just when they're indicted in the grand jury, when you give those instructions on the charges, when you're charging a case out, it is, it's painful just to read. <laughs> As a prosecutor, I literally sometimes would feel like, oh man, I feel sorry for these people. And it's, it's funny, but, that, but like, you have to say like, it. It oh, has absolutely. to be on the record, right. and they have to know exactly, specifically what they're doing. Otherwise, they're doing it wrong, and it's unfair. I just yeah. think it's funny because you know, I think one of the things that's been so interesting about serial that we've talked about many times on our podcast is this idea of like they're really kind of 
laying out the reality of a lot of how this works and, and kind of breaking that yeah. down for you and kind of bursting the bubble that we have of entertainment. But um, as someone who hasn't really dealt with the legal system, but, you know, I think two big types of shows we have on TV are, like, legal dramas and medical dramas. Yeah. <laughs> and so as someone who has also, like, as we've been working on this podcast, I've mentioned it on another podcast, but my grandmother's been really sick, so I've been spending a lot of time at the hospital, and it's like, hospitals are not exciting. Nope. And the more we learn about the legal <laughs> right. system, is like, this is it's not exciting. exciting. No. Like, it's, it's a lot of papers. Right. It's a lot Layla, of Layla, you reading. don't want to go to law school. <laughs> no, maybe I don't. Yeah, because it's right like, now, I'm never going to find Sam Watterson. No. You know? Like, that's not going to be... <laughs> I want to get my PhD in psychology now, though. <laughs> well, uh-oh. I want to do that again. Um, <laughs> but... We'll talk later. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody should go to law school. But anyways, just kidding. Not really. But I think um, a lot... I mean, a lot of people do get out of jury duty like you were saying that you know you don't understand it but a lot of people do get out of it and I think you know even if you've reached the adult age where you may have been called and you got out of it you don't probably realize like I know that there are jury instructions but I mm-hmm. had no idea until we're talking about it right now like yeah. when they happen kind of mm-hmm. what they mean that they would right. take so long the way and just whether the way people actually get them right yeah. I mean, is the other I mean, thing right the judge is supposed to try to explain them in a proper and understandable way it right. depends how many counts are are involved yeah how you know how many crimes they're being tried for and uh but you have to get it all out there and they're allowed to ask questions so they they send a note and then, oh yeah, and then I've heard about notes. Yeah, there's notes <laughs> and stuff, and then you know, then the, the the attorneys might have to come in for the notes and whatever, and so, and then everyone comes back and everyone's seated, and it just it takes forever, right? And um, there's a lot of sitting around and waiting. It's, if there's a bench conference, the jury. Most of the, it happened in Adnan's trial where they actually stayed like, in the jury box, I think. Right, or, and then oh, they, they turned on that like white door. noise machine. Yeah, they mentioned so white they, noise. Yeah. Like, I've never what? seen that, but who knows? All courts are different. Hey, who knows what's <laughs> happening in Maryland? <laughs> right. <Yeah>. But, um, you <laughs> know, like, the we jury. We have time to go to chambers. We have to just do this right here. Well, yeah, you could just go up to the bench, and, but maybe the jury goes back to the room, and they have to come back because, you know, there's a lot of them. Right. And But, I mean, I guess in this case, they didn't even go anywhere because they could even through that white noise machine they could still hear well, I don't she know the shouted setup. in that horrible horrible voice. <laughs> yeah, so, oh, oh. I mean that oh, we so know. we actually cut you off. I wanted you to talk about two things. What we were talking about originally which is whether what your understanding is of whether jurors really understand jury mm-hmm. instructions and just I'm just saying this so we don't forget. Do you think that jurors get irritated by like Goots's loud voice because I I know I did I am (laughs) am 99.9% sure Mm -hmm. that they are a little swayed by the personalities of the people in the courtroom the judge the attorneys it seems impossible yeah Yeah, I mean and I think well let's being at these answers yeah okay uh I'll do the the jury instruction one's pretty straightforward to answer uh research studies have shown that in terms of legal safeguards jury instructions aren't very effective because of what you were saying before they're long they're written in legal jargon so how is the common person Mm -hmm. on the street is supposed to follow okay this is the definition of murder in the first degree and this is the definition of what an expert is and okay you know you got to take these things into consideration but also other factors it's a laundry list of things they have to pay attention to and so how do you 
kind of get that at the end of the case when you've already heard all the evidence. It's not providing a framework. So one of the things I had mentioned earlier is that in some jurisdictions or some reforms that have been proposed are that if you pre-instruct the jury, so that way you're giving them some guidance before they actually hear any opening yeah. statements, any evidence. And then, like, reiterate it later. And reiterate, exactly. So if but you probably pre- not in full. It's just, yeah. you're going to hear this side. Exactly. They're going to bring witnesses. Then there's the opportunity to cross-examine a witness. Just basically laying out a skeleton of a trial. Yeah. Exactly. Because right. if you think about it, like you said, we all watch these legal dramas, but they don't necessarily actually reflect what and happens in the courtroom. Also, there's hearings upon hearings. Exactly. And... Trials don't just all happen all the time in one fell swoop. There's hearings beforehand to determine if certain evidence, for example, is admissible. And that Mm -hmm. can happen months before the full trial happens. And once that determination is made and it still goes to trial, that sort of thing. Say say it was determined that the gun wasn't going to be allowed to be presented at trial. Then they stipulate to that at the beginning of the trial, and you have to tell the jury not to do certain things, think certain things. So it, the point is, it's very complicated. <laughs> well, you're also getting into a second issue. So there, there are the the formal instructions that jurors are given about what their task is and how they should weigh the evidence and and what the counts are. So the legal definitions. So as we were saying, that could be a pre-instruction that provides a little bit of framework about here's the evidence you're going to hear, here's how the trial will play out. And then you get the formal ones at the end. But the idea would be that you've already created an expectation. So it's, it's giving them the rules of the game, essentially. So instead of just walking in there and going, oh, I don't know what we're going to do. Yeah. Or I guess we're just going to sit here a couple days and hear things. It's at least giving them some focus to follow and maybe fit the evidence into the various frameworks that they're using. Uh, though, the other thing that you brought up that I think is interesting is the, the judge almost in, in, in issuing a special instruction. So mm-hmm. as you were saying, okay, well, don't pay attention to that witness. I know you just heard the testimony, but yeah. you have to ignore it. That doesn't work either. It's yeah, and your psychological right. like uh, exactly. expertise. You're saying bull roar. Yeah, I, well, there's actually, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but uh, this phenomenon in cognitive psychology that if anybody tells you, don't think of the white bear, yeah. all yeah. you do is think of the white bear, yeah. and it's kind of the same effect with the evidence, so there could be two ways that it happens. It could be that, that you're told not to pay attention to it, so you can't help but pay attention yeah. to it, or it could just be, well, you're threatening my freedom, why can't I pay attention to this? I feel like that's important. So when the judge issues a special instruction like that, it can also be tricky from a psychological perspective as to, well, they they are paying attention to these things even though you told them not to. And it explains why, in case anyone was wondering, I think it was pretty clear, but why they did the mistrial, the first trial, you know. Oh, yeah. Right. Because they heard that. I think once they finally heard that story, because, I mean, they'd been floated around before that he had had a mistrial on the first trial and... I think when we heard that story finally of why it really right. happened, mm-hmm. like they were like, like oh, oh, now that she's yelled about being a liar, like now that we know she's right. a liar, it was like, what? Is so, this is crazy. So listeners to Serial shouldn't be all up in arms that there was a mistrial because there had to be at that point. Right. Mm-hmm. Because of her voice. Because of her voice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could kind of really yeah. say that that mistrial really, happened yeah. because, because of her voice. she's just too loud. I mean, sorry, Goose, but <laughs> your voice... You, too loud. She was screaming when there weren't jurors in the room. That's just how she talked. Right. Imagine what she was like <laughs> outside of the courtroom when she wasn't putting on a quote show. Yeah. It must have what been happens even... when Goots gets a little too much to drink? What oh, happens no. when she has a little too much to drink and has just walked out of a really loud place? Oh my god. <laughs> and has no idea about volume. It's so or loud. she has you walk up to her in a supermarket and she has headphones in. 
You're just oh, gonna be. No. Something tells over. me that Goots doesn't listen to headphones. I don't know well, why. Well, you know I what? R.I.P. Very... Goots. She's not with us yeah, anymore. Yeah, I know. So... I know. Uh, I mean, we we she was. She was around before the iPod. I mean, like you know, when the iPod. She never had headphones in Goots' time. I don't know if she was. She had an iPod. But you know what? She was a really she good a attorney, lawyer. apparently, at, at a certain time. So I guess she was an early adopter. Kudos to her. I'm going to say no. <laughs> yeah, there's something about Goots where I'm like, oh, did, did she listen to, like, did she have a good time? Because I feel like she had I a good time her. doing lawyerly things. Yeah. But there's a, a lot of lawyers time. like that. Yeah. They just... She she was doing work in the hospital. I, I know like, she was like in watch. the throes of death and still yeah. doing work. I would like, watch that so much Netflix. <laughs> I would uh, I'd, I'd have so much to do. It would not remotely be work related. <laughs> <laughs> right? No, nobody's bringing you files. Nobody's bringing me files in the hospital. Bed. But so um, going back to what you said um, about <clears throat> you know uh, being as a juror being told, hey, this is something like don't disregard this or don't pay attention to this. I think kind of also goes back to the fact that for me, I know one of the bigger things that I was having a hard time wrapping my mind around is how any juror can sort of dismiss the fact that Adnan never takes the stand. That, yeah, this you know, is Layla's huge yes question. Mm-hmm. Please, right. and I think it's yeah, just yeah, because it's like in my mind, it's just like well, if I were a juror, I would be like the. I find it very suspicious that he's not going up there. And I tried to explain, himself you know, legally maybe why that decision was made. But sure. But it doesn't it sound like it was pretty common? It is. Like, is that Absolutely. something that they could mention? Right. Well, uh, I don't believe so. No. no. I think they right. just say you are not to take into consideration the fact that he didn't. That does not bear on his guilt or innocence. I don't remember what the right, exact is, wording was. Which is but. interesting to me because, like, we're talking about kind of how ineffectual these instructions are. And it's like, well, if it's just a fact that the majority of these people do not testify, it's like that. But I don't think uh, that's a fact that a lot of people know. Right, that's what I'm well, saying. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't know what the statistic on that is. It's not like most defendants don't, many don't. I, it's just, I think it's right. so case by case. case. You don't, it's not that, oh, that's unusual that they testified. If yeah. they're, they're going to testify, they're going to testify. It's not, you don't do it to be unusual. But point is, yeah, there could be a million legal reasons why you don't put them on the stand, I, but I do think Layla raises a good question of, too bad, I'm going to take it into account. Right. But I'm sure some jurors don't because they're told not to. But oh, I would imagine, yeah, you're going to have like different people on a jury and you're going to have a couple of those people that those are like personalities. Right. Yeah. You know, some people will follow a rule. Right. And then you have other people who are not going to. Right. So what is what is your expertise tell us? <laughs> I, the research does show that defendants who don't take the stand are perceived as being guiltier than those who do get up and address. But it's an incredibly risky move because, as you guys have mentioned before, you, when you put your client on the stand, you're opening them up to cross-examination. Mm-hmm. And you cannot control what is going to come out during that process. I think the other thing that needs to be kept in mind, too, is not every defendant is going to be articulate enough or, you know, in the proper frame of mind to effectively testify also. So, what, like you were saying before, going case by case, if you can take, for example, um, in a case involving the insanity defense, those clients might be experiencing various psychological issues. That are, they're not going to effectively be able to get their side of the story across to the jury. So it's, oh, I could see, oh, I could see a defense attorney mm. turning around saying, "We're not doing it. It's too risky of a move." But at the same time, in a situation like that, there have been defendants who said, "I want to, you know, I 
various court cases where people have tr petitioned the courts to go off of their medication at trial so that way jurors could see actually oh the effects act of yes to see actually like no i'm mentally ill and that was one of the re reasons why i committed this crime okay oh, so yeah it's there's a lot we're of just gonna destabilize you while you're waiting here right so oh. it, it gets into this whole issue of i mean that's almost like the Medicaid. equivalent of like oh dress up for court so that right. you look more professional dress up for court down the meds. Down the meds. <laughs> Just all but the this, things. I think, you know, we've talked about this in the context of uh, def uh, defendants and also of experts, but it just seems like something that would happen with pretty much anybody that you sure. could bring up. I mean, I think of the George Zimmerman trial mm -hmm. and how they uh, interviewed, you know, George Zimmerman is the man who killed Trayvon Martin. And you have uh, the, the girl who was on the phone with Trayvon Martin while he was walking. Her name was Rachel Gentile. And she, like they were talking about how like the jury and like everyone was reading her so negatively because of the way she spoke because mm -hmm. of her manner mm -hmm. right but you know she, she's testifying she's the person who's on the phone with him and she's young she's like i don't think we, i don't think she was even out of high school yet by the time that's happening yeah. but they're like judging the way wow. that she presents as a person so i think yeah i mean it's definitely seems undeniable that people would just that's a human factor it's you know? just right. human which it, it all comes down to you guys should listen to our episode 111 where we realized humans are interesting. <laughs> humans are fascinating creatures. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I just, there's nothing that can be changed. You can't not give jury instructions. I guess right. maybe you can't not make them shorter, I don't think. You know, you have to get all the elements laid out. You have to tell them exactly what they can deliberate and what they can't. You have to allow them to give notes, like as many yeah. as... They need it. They need to bring back a witness. They can do that too. Um, so if they want to ask, have more questions asked. Uh, and some research has been going on about what are, what are more effective ways to help the jury. So as we were saying, pre-instructions are one that, uh -huh. okay, it's not super controversial. It's easy enough to do. It's yeah. not going to cost the government anything. Um, but actually allowing jurors to ask questions during the trial. So not necessarily just the notes, but... You know, one of the more radical ways would be, oh, excuse me, I have a question now, raise your hand, or note-taking even has been piloted in some jurisdictions to see, okay, well, if they have a little legal pad in front of them, can they actually do a better job keeping track of the evidence? I mean, a legal pad would be fitting. <laughs> right. Right. Not, not like the yeah. Marvel notebook, but it yeah. has to be a legal pad. <laughs> legal pad. So they, there has been research that's been ongoing about how can we how can we fix the jury system? So be it from how do we even get people to report for jury duty to how do we help jurors make the best decisions well, what possible? Are, what are some of the suggestions put out there by psychologists? So note-taking doesn't really seem to be that dangerous. Right. The research oh, yeah, so, you said yeah. so note-taking would be one. Instructions uh, before trial. Pre, yeah, pre-instructions. What else? Uh, asking questions could be another one. That's a little bit more controversial because the judge has to regulate that yeah. to some extent. Yeah, because mm -hmm. I can see how that yeah, could that be could, a yeah, problem like for a, everyone. Right. Uh, letting letting jurors discuss the evidence throughout trial. Uh. Yeah, they do it. In, we all know they do it informally anyway. You but. do know that. So you have done. Well, I don't know that conclusively, right, but I just yeah. anecdotally, it's yeah, like anecdotal. yeah. Anecdotal. Yeah. anecdote. So they do. You have done mock. You have observed mock juries yes. deliberate, correct? Yes. Can you tell us what you observed there? Well, the research that I was doing was looking at the emotional content of what's called victim impact statements. Yeah. So in death penalty trials, and you can do it in, in sentencing typically mm -hmm. and in some civil cases, but the victim could get up there and simply describe how the crime has impacted them so financially, emotionally, mm -hmm. psychologically, 
And various jurisdictions place limits on this. So, for example, New Jersey is very strict that if the victim says, shows any emotion, the judge will cut you off. It's just meant to be there to inform what the impact of the crime was, to make sure that the victim doesn't remain a faceless stranger. Okay. Because at least in the sentencing phase of death penalty trials, the defendant can present mitigating evidence to humanize and argue for a sentence lesser than death. Mm. But the fear of the courts is that, well, the victim is remaining faceless and the impact of what this crime the lasting impact of the crime isn't clear to the people who are trying to make this decision about whether someone should live or die. So mm. in some jurisdictions, anything goes. You can get up there and you could be as emotional as you want. You mm -hmm. can say what you want. You could curse or quote the Bible if you want. It really depends. But the Supreme Court previously was concerned that this doesn't add anything. It just makes people angry. And so their rationality mm -hmm. is going to be compromised. Uh, but then they changed their tune a couple of court cases later and said, nope, it's fair game, you know, we should allow it. But we don't know what it does. We, we know that the introduction of victim yeah. impact statements causes bias, uh, so, such that it tends to make them favor a sentence of death. But we don't necessarily uh -huh. understand the psychological mechanisms that are at play. And one would assume emotion has to come into play. It's a very, very intense situation where you're trying to decide whether or not you should deliver a sentence of death. And these are heinous crimes. It's gruesome evidence. Yeah. So without a doubt, that stuff is going to influence how you feel about a defendant, how you feel about a victim even. Uh, so that was the research I was doing in looking at um, the mock jury deliberation. So really want to see how do they talk about the victim? How do they talk about the defendant? So... Um, most studies we will use jurors, which will just have individuals come in and rend answer questions and render um, a sentence in this case because it was a death penalty case. Uh -huh. But other times we would actually try to set up a situation where they were deliberating for maybe 40 minutes until they reached a, a sentence or a decision. And so we just kind of sit them around a table, give them very abbreviated copies of jury instructions and let them go at it. And then, and did you find anything particularly... Were they lighthearted about dark matter sometimes because they've been, you know, like, are, are they, I'm just curious what their mental state is. I mean, I know that this was a mock jury. Right, and I think that's but... the big thing to keep in mind here, and that's, well, it's one of the criticisms of this type of research, that how oh. can you, how can you create a situation that mimics the hard decisions jurors are actually having to make? But the research, you know, it's a good approximation. So even though it does have its drawbacks, there, there is some consistency in some of the things that we're finding and that play out in actual cases. So I, I would say it, what was interesting to us is these were all volunteers, essentially. We mm. put ads on Craigslist yeah. and, hey, you want to come participate? So that's a in certain person already. Exactly. Right. I mean, you can't so trust volunteers, guys. Yeah. Oh, God. So we Especially would volunteers. It would really be interesting because we'd have people who'd be like, I served on a jury five times. Whoa. Whoa. And so it was kind of like you had these professional jurors almost right, coming right, right. in that they... Like they, these yeah. court fetishi fetishizers. Yes. A little Which, bit. There are... Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are people who go on dates. Some people go on dates to nightclubs. We didn't plan to go there. We were on a date, and we uh, ended up there. I would imagine that the stress and anxiety of a juror who's sitting in a murder trial must be so high because they can quote fail both sides. The sure. the person who has passed away and. Yeah person who is sitting on the chair and has 
his or her life might be over. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge decision. So d- has there been any research about the stress? There's also people who don't care. I was going to say that. You know I, I, mean? I have a I have reason Maybe, to believe yeah. that it's probably... I feel like a normal person. Okay, I shouldn't say yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. No such thing as like a normal person. How many times do you hear people going like, oh man, I got jury duty. Like, But if you're trying to... I feel a, like it's a good a, split 50-50 for people who are excited about participating in right. our legal well, system. Well, let's ask the psychologist. And people well, are I just like, boo, I need to take time off from work and get like whatever money they get for Yeah, no, I do think that that comes into play if they're like, oh, wait, I have childcare, I mm-hmm. have a job, so they might not care. You're right. Yeah. Uh, the research does show, though, that when we look at these jurors, these professional jurors that wind up on five trials somehow, they tend to favor the prosecution. So really? these professional jurors, the, the more experience you have, the more pro-prosecution you tend to be. Wow. And so... Why? I, I don't know off the top of my head, but it just, that, that seems to be the pattern that we see in the data. And think about it, what the, what the whole wow. point of a deliberating jury is, is that it's supposed to be a representative cross-section of your community. And so what we had, you guys had talk about, talked about in an earlier episode about yeah. using preemptory challenges mm-hmm. and using challenges for cause. And making sure you don't put anybody that you'd want to date. Exactly. Don't put right. anybody you want to date. That huge piece of advice. <laughs> um, Thank you, old boss. Hey. The, idea, the idea is that if you have a more diverse jury, they're going to spend more time talking about the evidence because they're all, it's, it's kind of the classic 12 angry men situation. They're bringing different right? points of view. Yeah, they're bringing different points of view. So if you have this very kind of homogenous jury where right. it's all, you know, upper middle class white guys, they're mm-hmm. probably not going to discuss the evidence that much because they're probably all leaning the same way. Yeah. But mm-hmm. if you have people in there that have different backgrounds, different experiences, different, you know, genders, ethnicities, orientation, whatever right. it might be, that's going to facilitate more discussion. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why you, we talked a little bit about um, using preemptory challenges, that if you're found to be using them in such a way to strike specific people, like, mm-hmm. oh, you've just struck, you know, got all, rid of all the women, or you've got yeah. rid of all the African Americans, you're in a lot of trouble because it undermines the whole spirit of why do we need Correct. a jury trial right. to begin with. But at the same time, right. research does show that Batson charges aren't necessarily effective. But a crafty attorney will find a way to put forth like a colorblind explanation as to yeah. why somebody just, was dismissed. Just as a reminder of Batson challenges, when you're challenging the person's peremptory challenges, mm-hmm. go back to that episode, guys. <laughs> no, no, uh, I have a question that's... Um, Kind of more just specific to serial, mm-hmm. um, you know, like when, the whole kind of point of our podcast or kind of how it started in a way is that we realized that, you know, for three friends who already do comedy together, we had these very specific points of view on the show and like good reasons to tie it. Like it for, for the topic of the show, the fact that Dipti is a former criminal prosecutor is like specific and interesting. If this was like a podcast about gardening that was just really well written, we, we wouldn't have been <laughs> so eager to jump on it. So when you're listening to it, Besides the fact that we all have things we react to that we enjoy, have there been any particular moments over the course of the show that you, from an expertise spot, were like, ooh, or, or that like stuck with you, or that you know really kind of popped in your mind? Well, I tend to get really excited about the ones that bring psychology or the Innocence Project episode was one oh, that yeah. really Deirdre. <laughs> <laughs> Who did you like better, Deirdre or Ewing? Ewing. I liked Ewing. I, 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 thought, I thought he did an excellent job of presenting. Excellent. Did you evidence? care that he needed some caffeine? No. 
I, I didn't either. either. I didn't either. I'm with you. I'm, with I, I'm, you. I'm way on board with Ewing right there. Um, yeah, so to me, it's it's the stuff that that appeals to me the most is going to be the things that I do. I had mentioned this to Layla at an earlier date that I feel like I'm a little jaded in some sense. I don't necessarily understand the cultural phenomenon about cereal and why. Well, because you already know that. It's I think that's it. Exactly. I'm like, oh, wait. <laughs> there could be injustice. It's a Tuesday, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, from an educational standpoint, I'm excited that it's getting people talking about the issues and maybe figuring out how the system actually functions. Right. Uh, but from a professional interest standpoint, it's kind of, okay, it's, you know, it's sad, it's unfortunate what's happening, but it's, there are other cases just like this that right. are going on as Which well. Which is the thing I think I had brought up like a while ago that it's interesting to me because I think in a lot of ways, this case isn't, I think sometimes this case is presented as like, wow, this case is really fascinating. But I'm like, that's probably just because we're not exposed to a lot of cases. That this is probably, I mean, not like par for the course, but maybe more common than we think it might be. I get what you're saying. I do think from a like show producer perspective I like like it might not be the world's most exciting case but it's perfectly ripe for right. what it has become right. absolutely because you have you this have like interesting characters yeah. you have this like 90s bent to it which is yeah. a nice like <laughs> callback to just the 90s he's a general. very good yeah. talker he's like if he was talker. not a good talker right. nobody would be that interested yeah. so right. he's a good talker you have like the cultural aspects that people are like oh i don't quite understand those and and even then like the just even little things like the fact that Anon and Hay together could bond on this level of like being kids who had to be secretive and then that was used against him and like right. so all of these little things that just really lend themselves to storytelling so it might not be the most exciting case, case itself act, but yeah. the, all of the elements of it I think right. definitely like lend itself mm -hmm. to yeah. entertainment wise like it's a great you know it's a great pitch for a story for sure yeah and I, th I think it's an interesting case but mm -hmm. I I, I get into stuff like this, so... I, I guess I, when you say it from a production standpoint, journalism, it, it definitely sucks you in. So I can appreciate that aspect, and I think maybe that's why people are getting so into it, because they're delving into this world that they don't know a lot about. And she's a great reporter. She finds a way to hook you and makes things accessible. She does a great job explaining things, so that way, if you don't have this background... You can kind of follow along and might wonder, oh, well, what is that? What do you mean, mistrial? Right. What happened yeah. there? Mm -hmm. So it's constantly making you want more. It's making you be a detective, essentially, right. and try to put the pieces together. Yeah. But because sometimes court stuff is like, you know, I mean, it's. I just I'm now recalling back to the days when court TV just started. Mm -hmm. It was literally like just a closed circuit yeah. camera on a court, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just like. <laughs> Dip is laughing hysterically. Dip is laughing so hard right now that she's not making noise. <laughs> she's not Something making noise. About, she is dying. Is it because of this one time we walked yes. by a building? <laughs> We're all walking by a building as a group. Now, this is not on a podcast, but like I said, Dip and Layla and I do comedy together, and one night after a show, we walked by a building that for some reason Dip mistook for the headquarters of Court, Court TV. TV. <laughs> it was nowhere that would have made sense for the headquarters of Court TV, and I believe it was just a giant condo. It was a giant condo. 
it was very funny. With the Keith Herring painting in the lobby, which is fancy. Which is so not court TV. Not um, court TV. That is I not... think I'm going to laugh every single time court TV is brought up. <laughs> I mean, we forever. Is the thing. But um, going back to the court TV yes, thing, is yes. like whenever you would, whenever, when at least whenever I would watch it, I would be like, oh, this is really interesting. But there would be huge chunks of that spot right. where I'd be like, I don't know what's happening. I mean, it's the same thing. I genuinely enjoy huge slots of C-SPAN. At the same time, right. I get that it's not the most exciting yeah. thing all the time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so do you watch, like, legal drama at all? Uh, it's, it's sometimes, I really, The Wire was probably, bringing back to Baltimore. Now. <laughs> the Wire was probably the thing that killed other legal dramas for yeah. me. That it's, it's, I can't watch Law & Order anymore. As much as I used to love SVU, it's just, it's hard yeah. for me to watch a case be resolved neatly in an hour after you spent several years in Baltimore. See, <laughs> I still, I, well, first of all, I, I just like the original Law & Order. I still love Law & I still Order. like watching it, even though I know, like, they're just not showing any yeah. of the paperwork that mm-hmm. goes I'll into go it. I'll into, but, like, the zany ones. Like, I'll do some criminal intent. I know. <laughs> I'm I loved it. when they had Vincent D'Onofrio and he was always bending sideways yeah. to get into like trying to get into things. Such a like weird crouching. <laughs> but it is yeah. funny, like, yeah, that, that idea of, I kind of actually really like that you said, like, after after Baltimore, I can't watch Law and Order. I'm like, after Serial, or is anybody going to yeah. be able to listen to, like, legal stories? Right. Like, after right. Baltimore. Without yeah. having, well, I mean, and I think that brings up a kind of interesting, uh, and I, this is perhaps fodder for more conversation, but is that good or is that bad? You know, like, I can't sit through, I can't be a juror um, successfully because I don't have somebody making this compelling for me. I think that's already a problem. I think it's already a problem. I think serial actually, if anything, might make some people more patient. Right. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I've heard either a joke or a saying that's very like, oh, juries are dumb because it's all the people who didn't, they weren't smart enough to get out of jury duty. Yeah. So like, you know, I've I've heard that like many times. But but they're actually, and I think there's. That's funny, but I do think that I'm not actually talking smack right. about juries. Right, but right, I mean, right. I'm just saying, like in that sense, it's of, a total joke. If you yeah. combine that, you know, kind of idea that floats out there with right. the, what we're, you know, what we've called and what is apparently a common phrase of like the CSI effect. Mm-hmm. Like, well, yeah, it's hard for anybody to accept that. Like, why isn't this wrapping up in an hour? And where's the actual? They want every piece of evidence to be there, yeah. and they want DNA on everything, and they want everything to like just fit in a perfect, you know, bow. What upsets a lot of people is who's in the jury sometimes, and they just get flustered at the notion that these people are determining someone's life. <laughs> yeah. And it is really eye-opening to some people, and it's just the truth. I, I mean, had, that's just what happens. I was talking to a colleague the other day. Um, he's an ecologist, so he's like, your work is fascinating. Let's like yeah. nerd out about it. And he was talking about he was serving as an alternate juror one day. And for those of you unfamiliar, the alternates are just there in case one of the main jurors gets dismissed or gets sick and can't continue. So you have to do everything the other jurors do, but you may not get to deliberate. Yeah. So you have to sit there the entire time and... It's like waiting on a line for a roller coaster and then you just pass through. Exactly. They're like, like, I'm just going to be holding that person's bag. And so my colleague was doing the right thing and one of the experts was up there talking about um, various doctors he had worked with and he noticed, oh, he mentioned my doctor. I should let the judge know this. Yeah, you'd have to. And so he goes over and he tells the judge, hey, you know, I heard my doctor's name get mentioned. I just want to make you aware of this connection here. And he got yelled at. 
Oh, really? For kind of stopping the thing and like, oh. well, it doesn't really matter. So, oh, oh wow. It, it depends. Yeah. It I depends mean, but see, like everything. sometimes that happens. Like the judge was like, "Oh yeah, don't worry about Jay getting a lawyer from oh, the yeah. prosecutor." Yeah, yeah. Like, he has no he idea that he understand. He doesn't understand that this is like a huge conflict of interest and whatever. Yeah. I mean, people are fallible and everything's exactly. fucked. I have so. one. <laughs> I have one last question for you. Are any of your colleagues or any or anyone in the community of <laughs> psychology PhDs or whoever <laughs> talking about serial? Not to my knowledge. I keep telling my friends, oh, you got to get into this. This is all stuff that we do research on. But uh, nobody's really kind of hooked into it yet. You're not having water cooler discussions no. about cereal every you Friday. Guys Actually, no, that's not true. Market, that's so not true. you don't want to hang out with... It's kind of... It's an element of that. There is one clinical psychologist I work with who watches that, but he's also a This American Life fanatic. Uh-huh. So oh, I sure. think that's probably yeah. the big connection there. But to my knowledge, at least the people that I've been working with, nobody's really, they, they were aware of it, but nobody's gotten around to listening to it. One of, one of my best friends, Michelle, she's a psychologist, and she is all up in serial. She <laughs> loves the psychology aspect of it. The episode 11 was so awesome to her. Uh, and so I was just wondering if, I don't know, people who actually are talking about juries and studying that, and the legal aspect of psychology uh, are interested in it, but it sounds like no. One of the reasons I actually think that the show, you know, even once when Serial's over and everybody knows like whether or not they felt satisfied or not satisfied, some people are still going to listen because I think some of that might end up coming out and people who are like, well, this is what I do. I don't really want to listen to this in my free time might go, oh, apparently it's been presented in a way that's very different. I might check it out yeah. now and, right. and then go, oh, this is more realistic. Like you were saying to Dee as a lawyer that when you watched The Wire, you were like, yeah, this is more... Accurate. I, I like also that we all agree on the wire and that I finally <laughs> doubled down <laughs> on your behind. Yes, like, of course. You know, but that, that you were like, yeah, after that, it's hard to, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've never seen it presented as correctly. And I feel right. like, yeah, like they might not plan on spending their free time with it now, but if they get the feedback that like, yeah, it actually like lays it out. It's very different. Yeah. It's not, you know, CSI. Like they might. The way the curious. wire does it though, is they just show like serial does that. It's not saying this is how things operate. It's saying this is how complicated and mm-hmm. screwed up everything right. is. Right, no, that's right. what I love about it. And how there's no... Because that's my general position in oh. life. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. And uh, the, that's why I get excited about the show because it is educating people to that. Serial is. Yeah, yeah, and The Wire even, I would argue. But the, the I, I teach college courses in psychology and law, mm-hmm. so I tell my students, you know, the system is flawed. Like, you need to know your rights and you if you are being questioned by a cop... Get a lawyer. You know, yeah. Don't think like, oh, everything's going to be okay. The system's right. not going to fail me. The system right. fails all the time. Why? Mm-hmm. Because, as we said, it's valuable. It's right. it, men are, It's man-made. So there's going to be problems with it. I also think that Serial, Daisy, you were just mentioning all the reasons why it is becoming such a huge cultural phenomenon. I think another part of it is the climate of the latter half of, or pretty much all of 2014, mm-hmm. in which Serial... Mm-hmm. Was made. Granted, it started over a year over ago, a year ago. maybe. Well, but, recording, but it, yeah, when by but, the time she yeah, started, air, we had out. Ferguson, we had Eric Garner, there was Trayvon Martin. Um, right. Everyone's questioning things, whether they're super for or against, things yeah. or against whatever your viewpoint is, you're thinking about it. Right. So it's hitting at this very ripe time, and it's just bringing in all elements of. 90s pop culture, psychology, absolutely, ra- mm-hmm. uh, radio production, journalism. What is this? Is this entertainment? I'm skeptical of human beings. 
are we men? Are we? You know, it's funny because you just mentioned like, yeah, get a lawyer. Jen, you know, our guest just mentioned get a like get a lawyer. But one of my favorite parts of the book Homicide, which I read. <laughs> oh God, um, easy read Homicide, guys. Take a drink. <laughs> she said the book. I, I wish that there was a drinking game. game. God, if you are listening to this and you do a drinking <laughs> game about things that we do, like, please email us and let us know because that would make me. Thrilled, um, or it will make us super offended. <laughs> Only you would be offended. I would, I would be thrilled. Uh, but I think every single time like, I say like, sorry guys, <laughs> we all do it. Um, we all do it. But my, one of my absolute favorite chapters in the book Homicide, which I recommend you download from Audible, is I'm going to by the way. You, it's so good. But is there's like a whole chapter where they're just, or not even a whole chapter, but there's a whole section where they're like. Side detectives do not understand why people start talking to them without a lawyer. Like every single time they're surprised. Like they're like, really? Cool. You too? Alright. Like they're just in a constant hmm. state of like, I can't believe these people have not figured out yet that they really shouldn't be talking to us. That's like, funny. And it's a, and it's so well written too. Like yeah. it's just very well presented. But it's fascinating right. in that same kind mm-hmm. of, you know, behind the scenes look at like this idea that like the cops are even like Right, again. Well, they're talking to me. <laughs> sure, better so, jump on this. Yeah. Oh, and they will. Which oh, is so yeah. Funny. yeah. Which, for them, they should. For for them, I don't know. That's when they think they'll get the straightest story. Uh, for it, who's wh- them? What the, the cops? <laughs> oh, for the cops. Like, well, of course, for the cops. They want the, they why want the person to talk to them. They? Absolutely. Um. Yeah. So well. Anyways, Jen, thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. So so much for coming for on. Us. Anytime, guys. I had so a great time. So interesting. You're so kind to. I guess on our podcast it was awesome having you on thank you very much you're so smart (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so much school yeah so much school so much school 10 years worth of school do you watch How to Get Away with Murder I do not but everybody keeps telling me I should you should just because it's like funny it's like so over the top (laughs) Uh that it's like you know, you, you can't even bother to be bothered that how unrealistic it is because that's like the whole point of it. You know? It's like watching a superhero movie about lawyers. Like, it's like bizarre. Um, so I recommend that too. Uh, but again, Jen, thank you so much. Anytime. It is so nice to have you. And, you know, just to mention it, guys, if you do have any questions, if you're doing a drinking game, whatever it is that you want to let us know, please hit us up. We have a few ways that you can do that. One is by email, and our email address is seriallyobsessedpod. That's seriallyobsessedpod at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us, and I'm going to spell it out, so pay attention because this one's a little tough. But our Twitter handle is at serialobsessedpod, as in like singular, so S-E-R-I-A-L. O-B-S-E-S-S-P-O-D. That's us on Twitter. Please tweet at us. A few people have been doing it, and we love when we get tweets. Yeah. Some people send us tweets. Yeah, you guys have been see. great on Twitter. Thank you. Yeah. People have been sharing their opinions on, like, their local malls, and, like, it's great. So, like, we <laughs> someone, love it when you guys interact. Someone just tweeted today that people are all... Someone just tweeted that people recently that people are all ages as a throwback to episode three. <laughs> oh, I find that was a beautiful statement from you, Tim. <laughs> yep. People are just, people can be all ages. Yeah. <laughs> so we love it when we hear from you guys and we're just so thrilled that you're listening. Thank you so much. And again, thank you to Jen. Guys, this has been another episode. Join us again. I hope you liked this bonus episode. We're going to be doing a little bit more. So join us there. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time, guys. Bye. Bye.